1 Timothy chapter 2, if you've got a Bible, that's where we're going to be. Uh, as you're turning there, I want you to, to think and, and just think about how you were raised uh, or how you're raising your own kids, especially if you have sons. I know this is a conversation in our culture. I know this happens. Um, and I want you to just kind of shout out some answers or think about some answers. Maybe you're embarrassed to shout out the answer. That's okay. How would you coach that person if you knew they were prepping for a fight? If they had a battle coming, what were the words of wisdom you received? What was the advice you were given? What's the advice you would give? Any, just anybody, some of you are ready, like you're ready to fight right now. Anybody got anything? <laughs> yes, Appalachia, yes. Anybody else? Run faster than the other guy, okay, all right. Anybody else? What's the consequences? Yeah, that sounds like a big conversation. Others? She must have been an educator. <laughs> anybody else? I was looking for, like, don't start it, but make sure you finish it. Did anybody get that growing up? All right, yeah. We're, uh, never walk away, right? Try to walk away until they won't let you walk away, and then don't walk away, right? Remember when we did the Enneagram personality thing? By the way, your advice to this says a lot about your personality, okay? My fiveness says just hide. Just don't, <laughs> it's just like we're going to go read a book about it, okay? But, but uh, we were, Carrie and I were talking this week, and her niece apparently asked her mom, um, not, she said, not that I'm saying I'm going to do this, but if I were to punch someone, where do I put my thumb? I love that, right? Like, there's a lot of thinking, and that's a very critical, important question. So I was thinking about that this week, the, the pre-fight speeches. And, and if you're like me, you love films, you love movies, I found some of the best pre-fight speeches that for about three minutes I want to show you. I want you to get a glimpse. See if this just gets you going, gets you excited as we jump in. So check this out real quick. You can't beat Mel Gibson, Mickey, and Russell Crowe and Denzel Washington. Like, it just doesn't get better than that. We're... we're we get these ideas from these speeches, right, that prompt action. We need speed. We got to learn to be together. Or we're going to die, right? We, this, this, what we do here now in the present echoes in eternity, this is our culture. Now, I don't know if you noticed this or not, but we live in a culture of battles and fighting right now. Have you, have you seen this? Okay, three of you are with me. The rest of you are like maybe getting there. So I, I teach at the high school now, and I hear this all the time, right? Like the kids walk in, well, so-and-so did this, and if they do that, I'm going to do this, and we're going to get, and that's just the ladies, right? Like not even talking about the guys. See, those speeches are calls to action, calls to be ready to fight, calls to attack and defend at any cost. There is absolutely no speech you will find in epic films where the coach or the leader or the military warrior says, hey, relax, guys, let's go eat some good food and tacos and just don't do anything. Mel Gibson's never going to make that movie. Right? It doesn't happen because it's always about action. And so for us, as good Western Hollywood-raised Americans, aren't we? Like, we love this. We're a John Wayne generation, an action hero Chuck Norris-loving generation, aren't we? Yes? Yes? Okay. When we fight, we fight. And we see it even today in our politics, and our passions. We see it on our social media. People are just like fist-fighting with keyboards. I don't know how they do it, but it happens and you've been sucked into it, and I've been sucked into it, and it happens, right? We see it in our relationships. So we're in this series called Next One Up. Last week, I, I told you that the call of the series is to step up to the life in Christ that you've been called to live. 
And so for that reason, I love these speeches, this idea of something in our hearts that epically connects with our destiny that God has for us to say, God has a life beyond any life you've ever imagined. He has things for you in this world to live out, things for you to step into. Last week, I asked you the question, what is your even though? Remember, Paul says, even though I was the chief of sinners, even though I was broken, even though I was arrogant, even though I was persecuting Christians, God rescued me. And I said to you, what is your even though? What's the thing that stands in the way of you living the life God has called you to? Because that's what this series is all about. At the end of this series, there's another sign-up sheet in the back, by the way. Today's like recruitment Sunday. There's another sign-up sheet in the back. I want to do a next one up spiritual leadership training. We're going to do a couple Wednesday nights in a row where if you're at that point and you're going, I'm, I'm ready to step into this. Mel Gibson got me. Let's go, right? Let's go fight for freedom spiritually, whatever that looks like. I'd love to spend a couple Wednesdays with you just exploring how do you discover your spiritual gifts, how do you start to live that out? How do you begin to live in a way that says, Jesus, I'm all in for you? And I've asked you, for what, what has God called you to? We're talking about moving from being the spider church to the starfish church. Remember, you cut the head off the spider, it dies. You, you, re, you, you cut a starfish in half and it replicates, it multiplies. That's the type of church we want to be. So 1 Timothy is this practical letter. Paul is pastoring. He's mentoring Timothy towards fruitfulness as a leader and a disciple maker. And I think at the end of chapter 1, where we left off last week, he says to Timothy something that could have been in these films. Look at verse 18 of 1 Timothy 1. Here's what he says. We covered this last week. Timothy, my son. I love that, right? It's that mentor. It's that discipler. Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that by recalling them, now watch, you may fight the battle well. Paul's saying to Timothy, I want you to fight this battle well. You've got this stuff going on. He's been talking in chapter 1 about the problems in the church, the false doctrines, the speculations, the, the, the conspiracy theories that the church people were chasing. He says, I want you to fight that battle well. Now look at verse 19. We didn't read this last week. Holding on to faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected, and so have suffered shipwreck with regard to the faith. He says there's some in your community of believers that they've shipwrecked their faith. They've lost it. And then he says in verse 20, and wouldn't, wouldn't this be an awful reputation if you were these guys? Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Can you imagine your pastor saying that to you? How many people would leave my church if I was like, so-and-so and so-and-so, I handed them off to Satan? Like, Paul didn't pull any punches here. And this was all about false teaching. This was about the fact that he was saying about these two men, I've cast them out in hopes that they will repent, in hopes that they will come back in. Paul is saying to Timothy, first of all, if you're going to fight this battle well, you've got to do it in a way that doesn't let the church become toxic. That doesn't let the church get swallowed up with the virus of bad doctrine, with the virus of controversy, with the virus of conflict. But he, but he calls out this sinfulness, and he says, you got to fight this battle well. In, in, earlier in that chapter, and we kind of skipped this last week, and I want to I go back and touch this. He says, verse 9, we also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly, the sinful, the unholy, irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. Now, by the way, if you were to break this passage apart, 9 through 11, 
you would find Paul referencing every one of the Ten Commandments. The idea of having God at the center of life, the idea of honoring parents, the idea of purity and sexuality, all these things that Paul says, those things cannot infiltrate our churches. We can't be a church that softens on those things. He says you've got to fight that battle. You've got to understand that the nature of the church as a body of believers, and you know this and I know this, is to break itself down. That's what he says. He calls out this sin. So part of the battle that he's calling Timothy to fight, and we're going to talk about this today, part of the battle is an inward battle. It's a community battle. How many of you know you fight battles with the people that you love, right? We get there. We get that. Part of the battle is in the church. And Paul says to Timothy, deal with it. You've got to understand this. You've got to confront it. You've got to be honest about it. Because the community of faith should be the place, if we're living into the spiritual calling God has for us, where brothers and sisters can speak truth to each other because we are a family and deal with it and stay committed to each other. I say this all the time. There's over 41 another's in the Bible. Love one another, bear with one another, carry each other's burdens. You cannot do all of those things in 60 minutes on a Sunday. We need life together. This is why it matters that you find your way into house churches, that you find your way into serving, that you find your way into partnership when you feel like the place has become your family because we need to be the family of Christ. But now he's going to press outward in chapter 2, and he's going to say the battle isn't just within. Let's go outward. Look at chapter 2. Let's start at verse 1, and we're going to go through seven verses today. That's all I got. Okay, I got 20 verses last week, seven today. So you should be out of here a little bit earlier. Here's what he says. I urge then. Now remember, he's told Timothy, fight the battle well. So he says, I urge then, first of all. Everybody say first of all. This means it's really important, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for who? All people. So catch this. Paul says, first of all, let's see, we'll get to the, the, the meat of this letter. He says, you're going to deal with the speculations, the false teaching, the problems inside the church, but don't think that's it because the battle to fight well is also outside of the faith community. And Paul says, here's where it starts. Prayer. You got to pray. Now this doesn't sound like Mel Gibson. This doesn't sound like Denzel Washington. This doesn't sound like Coach Mickey, right? This sounds like Paul is saying, okay, fight this battle well. You ready? I'm going to tell you how to do it. Sit down, shut up, and pray. Get quiet. Rest in God. Now, here's, here's my question for us. I was thinking about that this week. Who, who do we pray for, right? Who do you spend time praying for? My guess is you pray like I do for yourself, for your family, for close friends, any, any prayer warriors in the room that you kind of got your list or you got your app that you track and, and you pray for people. And my guess is, like me, that you start with those closest to you and, and maybe sometimes work your way out. That's how we tend to function, right? But Paul has something else to say. Read it again and let's keep going. Verse 1, I urge then, first of all, that, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for who? For all people. Now verse 2, here's where he starts. You ready? You're going to love this today. For kings and all those in authority. Wait a minute. We should rewind and go somewhere else to church this morning, shouldn't we? See, Paul starts his call to prayer. If you're going to fight this battle outside of the church, you should pray for those in authority first. Those with power. Now let's talk about first century government for a minute because I know that's the question you're dying to have answered today. What were first century politics like? 
The Jewish people had been pressured, squeezed, overthrown, dictated to for many generations by Babylon, by Assyria, by Greece, by Rome. At the time of Jesus, there had not been a, 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 an independent Israel for a really long time. And so they longed for God to overthrow the oppressors like he had with the Egyptians and Moses. When they thought of a Messiah, they thought, we're going to get another Moses. He's going to come in and just like teach the pharaohs a lesson. He's going to get the empire out of the way. He's going to overthrow them military-wise, and we'll be okay. But they had also learned, here's what Israel had learned, an important lesson about how to conduct themselves along the way. Because along the way, they had been taken into exile, ripped out of their land, moved and living in a place that was not their home, and God had been teaching them. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But in 510 B.C., Rome had become this empire, this imperial system. They were ruled by one emperor. The, anybody know who it was called? It was called the Caesar, right? So Julius Caesar comes to power in 27 B.C. And catch this, and I, I love this imagery. He is proclaimed, as he takes the throne of the Roman Empire, he's proclaimed the divine son of God who would bring all hope into the world. He was a savior. He was Lord. He was ruler of the world. And so if you were living in one of the territories that Rome ruled, including Israel, and you questioned the emperor, then that meant you were questioning the empire, and no one could go against this. And so when 1 Timothy is written, there's this great persecution taking place. The people are suffering. They're believing that Christ is the Lord, and yet they're facing the oppression of the empire. Now, the Jews, like I said, had learned a long time ago how to live in exile because the prophet Jeremiah had spoken to them, had talked to them about what it meant to be exiles, people living in a land where it didn't feel like the land was as it should be. Do you recognize what that feels like? In Jeremiah 29, there's a letter from the prophet written to the Israelites in exile. This is one of the theme verses for our church as a whole. Here's what it says, Jeremiah 29, verse 7. God tells the people in exile, also seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Now, doesn't this not sound like our American culture when our political system is not in power? I hope those people do well. I just care about them so much. My side didn't win, but I sure hope they do well, because if they prosper, we'll prosper. See, this is what exile looks like. It's critical. Jeremiah speaks to the exiles who'd been ripped out of their land, stolen, kidnapped, slaughtered. If anyone had reason to be politically unhappy, it was the Israelites. They should have hated the Babylonians. They should have hated the Assyrians. The Romans complained about them, wanted them out. And yet God's directive is help life get better for them. Seek the well-being of your enemy. And see, Paul echoes this here. He says to Timothy, if you're going to fight this battle outside the church well, first of all, you need to pray. What should I pray for? Pray for those who rule over you, the ones you struggle with by name, Biden, Trump, Justice, Manchin, Pelosi, McConnell, your boss. Who is it that we need to be praying for? Paul says, for all those in authority. The kings who rule over you. get this, right? We've heard this. We've heard this in the church. We even pray for this. God, would you change their heart? God, would you save that pagan? 
Would you shift how they think about abortion? Would you show them where they're wrong or protect them because we know we're right? God, we pray with our agendas, don't we? Don't we pray with our agenda? See, first of all, I want to be honest. I'm not sure, I know for me, but I'm not sure for we. I I know for me, I don't pray enough. Now, I I say that, and and I also know that we're, under salvation by grace alone, amen? Like God is not measuring us. And so I don't say this as a legalistic measuring barometer. I'm saying I know personally I don't spend enough time in prayer. And I've been thinking this week that maybe the, maybe the barometer for me personally is that I should pray as much as I post, that maybe that's a good starting point, that we should pray every time I have an argument, I should start praying for those things, for those people, that I should pray before I argue, that I should pray before I post. And if we're praying, I want you to see the next part of this verse. Let's, let's go through this. Verse 1 again. Paul says, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, thanksgiving be made for all people. Verse 2, for kings and all those in authority. And why? Why does Paul say this? That we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Notice the type of prayers, petitions. God says, ask me for things. Make requests, prayers, listen to God, intercession, thanksgiving. And then he says, why? Why do you want to do that? So that you can be peaceful and quiet in godliness and holiness. Now, here's where I struggle with these verses, and I bet you do too, because I'm raised on the Chuck Norris generation, right? Can you picture Mickey going, Rocky, just sit down and stay quiet. None of us see that. It's not the American way. It's not the coaching we got growing up of don't start it, but you better finish it. And I'm not saying any of that's wrong. But I am saying spiritually, God's kingdom has always looked different than power in our world, than aggression in our world. See, Paul, didn't, didn't he just tell Timothy, you're going to fight this battle well? Well, how do you fight your battles today? How do I fight my battles? I get loud. I get angry, I get physical, we prove we're right. And Paul says, no, no, pray first so that you can be peaceful and quiet. Some of us are praying and staying loud and reckless or restless. And Paul says, when you pray, rest. Because God's got it. When it comes to the outer battles, the world outside the church, relax and pray. Give that to God. Make intercessions, requests. He's not surprised by who's in office. He's not surprised by any of this. Why do we do this? Verse 3. This is good, Paul says, and it pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth, to which I go, yeah, save them. Change the ones that I disagree with. No, God says, rest. Pray. Let me take care of it. I want people to come to me. I've got a mission. You don't have to worry about whether my mission will be accomplished because I have always been the king of the universe regardless of who sits on the throne of your country or your city or your state or your region. It doesn't matter because God has always been the king of the universe. So why should we do this? Verse 5. For there's one God, Paul says, And one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Okay, so I'm going to go back to first century politics. You guys okay with that? You you say yes, because you really don't have a choice. Caesar was God, right? That's what they understood. 
the Son of God. He was the Savior, and, and this is literally written in Roman historical uh, artifacts that have been found. He was the Savior bringing good news, the gospel, euangelion, that's the, the Greek word, into the world. And to prove it, for Caesar to prove how good of a God, how awesome of a Savior, how divine he was, he would send messengers, witnesses, heralds, to all the provinces and territories to announce his reign, usually after a battle in which Rome had slaughtered several of the young men fighting as soldiers for that territory, he would send his emissaries in and he would say, look how good I am. I killed your young men. I rescued your land and you now fall under my power. And just so you can remember, we'll set up statues of myself all over your land so that you look at that and you recognize what a good God your Caesar is. Isn't this good news? It's the gospel. Caesar is Lord. Caesar is King. You're under the reign of Rome and the very son of God, Caesar himself, has brought peace to your land. Now that you know how good this is, give us 90% of your earnings for our taxes. That's the empire system. That's the way it works. So don't miss how brilliant this is when Paul writes in Timothy, and he says to Timothy, and he says to his church, when it comes to the battle outside of your faith community, first of all, pray for the rulers, the ones that you wish were thrown out. Pray for them to do well. Intercede for them. God is faithful. And then he says, and don't miss this, by the way, that guy claiming to be God, no, there's only one God. There's only one Lord. And the mediator that they sent, there's only one mediator. And what Caesar keeps taking, Jesus is giving. When Caesar takes life, Jesus gives life. Friends, this passage is brilliantly and beautifully politically subversive. This is Paul at his very political best saying, pray for the leaders and know that this empire is not going to win. And as you settle, as you become peaceful and live quiet lives, this empire is going to be overthrown by the prayers of God's people. Mark 10, 45, Jesus says this, right? For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, I think like Caesar did, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. By the way, that verse was written right after the disciples said, Lord, tell us how to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. He says, give your life away. Give it up. Sacrifice yourself. See, salvation says this, God is one, there is no other, there is one mediator. Things are not right between you and God, between me and God because of our sin. And Jesus makes it right by giving up himself. He is the ransom. By the way, in this society, in this culture where Timothy's living, many were slaves and salvation was for everyone. It was forgiveness of debts. Jesus was, and I like this language I read this week, he was the cable of salvation and the conduit of salvation. He was both of those things. Look at verse 5 again. For there's one God, one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. So here's the question. Paul's saying this to Timothy in the midst of empire, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of suffering. The question is, how is it being witnessed to? And I think Paul would say this, in us, the hope of salvation in God alone and not in the empire is witness to in those who follow Jesus, pray for the empire, live peaceful and quiet lives as they live under the authority of King Jesus. See, when we do what Paul calls us to, when we pray for the leaders, for the empire around us, we witness to Jesus in us. 
We give of ourselves as he gave. He fed. Watch this. Jesus fed the very people, the thousands of people who would later shout at him, crucify him. That doesn't make political sense in our Chuck Norris culture, does it? He gave himself up for the ones who would slaughter him later on. In giving up his rights, he overcame the empire. Look at verse 7, last verse I want to cover for the day. And for this purpose, underline that, highlight that, pay attention to that. For this purpose, Paul says, I was appointed a herald, just like the heralds that Caesar would send, and an apostle. He says, I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying in a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. For what purpose, Paul says, to witness to Jesus? I've been appointed, I've been ordained, I've been called. By the way, check this out. That word for appointed literally means ordained. Guess what I did to get ordained? I went to seminary, I paid a lot of money, I got a robe, I got a thing that hangs over my neck, and you know what? I'm not any more ordained than you are because that's what the gospel says. The gospel says, next one up, you're ordained, you're appointed to be a herald to be an official messenger. You're an apostle. You're sent. Now, these terms, herald and apostle, these were widely used both in the church and the empire. They, the, the, the church, Paul is taking these terms, and he's saying, watch, we're going to subvert this. We're going to change this so that it starts to take on new meaning. Because even if you're being taxed 90%, even if you're a slave, even if you're unhappy under the way the empire is ruling, you are still the messenger of a kingdom that will not end. See, here's what I want you to get. If you're stepping up in God's kingdom, if you're going all in, if we're going to do this next one up thing and over the next couple years we're going to say, hey, what if we discipled 50% of our church and then deployed them into ministry and mission for Christ? What would that look like? If you're going to do this, there are some questions that I think we have to answer right now in this culture today. So three questions today I want you to wrestle with. Write these down, think about them, take notes, pay attention. Here's the first one. Today, right now, in this moment, in this season of your life, how are you fighting your battles? How are you fighting your battles? Can I just tell you the truth? And you all know this already. You're going to have them. How many of you just live a battle-free life? You never have any struggles, never any. We all have battles, right? Paul says two things in the first two chapters. When it comes to believers in Christ, fellow brothers and sisters, when you have battles with your brothers and sisters, you need to have truth and grace. You need to speak truth to each other. We need to be churches that go to the ones that we don't like sitting beside in the pews on Sunday mornings and saying, listen, we got a deal. We got an issue. The scripture calls us to love each other. We're a family. We've got to go after this. Let's get at it. That's how Paul says, when it comes to the internal battles, we got to be direct. we got to go with this. And then when it comes to the external battles, Paul says, prayer and a subversive life. When it comes to those battles outside the church, for those who don't follow Christ, for the, the, the empire, for the ones that you know are pagan. See, this is what I see a lot of times. The church today, Christians today, want to live truth to the, the, the people who don't know Jesus. We are really good Let's shout at those pagans out there who act like they don't know God. And then let's avoid the Christians that we should be direct with. Let's triangulate. Let's, let's go to, to so-and-so and tell them, can you believe the person in the church? And You guys ever lived that in church world? See, it needs to be flipped. We need to speak truth to each other out of grace and love and commitment. And for the rest of the world, why are we expecting people who don't follow Jesus to live like they follow Jesus? 
it's really baffling to me when Christians are like, can you believe how pagan our pagan society is living? Yes, I can. I can absolutely believe that because they are hopeless without Christ. They're living in darkness. And we're called to be the light to them. What does prayer look like for you? See, what are the out there battles that you need to face, that you need to carry prayer into? Politicians, news media, your positions, whatever it is, morality. How do you fight this battle? How are you fighting your battles right now? Here's the second question. And this is the question no one wants to talk to in church, but I want to talk to because I think it's fun. What about politics and the rest of our world? What do we as followers of Jesus, how do we approach this? Can I just say to you, this is an absolutely essential question for the followers of Jesus. It is a critical question for Christ followers today to answer. Because the majority of the people that I know and you know who won't want anything to do with the church or Jesus has something to do with their assumptions about Christian politics. You know it and I know it. See, here's what Paul would say. When it comes to politics, when it comes to the empire around us, you're called to be transformative, but you are not called to be obsessive. Can I say this again? You are called to be transformative. We are called to be about the work of bringing heaven to earth, of bringing the kingdom of God to reality to earth. And so, yes, friends, we speak up about things that matter biblically to God. Can I say human life was a biblical issue before it was a political issue. Justice was a biblical issue before it was a political issue. Equality was a biblical issue before it was a political issue. We are called to speak into those things transformatively, to live subversively, to demonstrate, hey, watch what the church does to see how the world should be, but we are not called, as so many of us are, up to be obsessive. And obsessive looks like it's all we can think about, all we can talk about, all we can post about, all we can wrestle through. See, when Paul tells Timothy to pray for all those rulers and authorities, he's requesting prayer for the enemies of the church. And he suggests that, by the way, the good fight is one of forgiveness and love in the face of hate and persecution. I don't really have time to go into all this, but there's a great YouTube video. I've spoken to this before. Go look it up. It's called, uh, the, the, the speaker is J. Edwin Orr, O-R-R, and he talks about the role of prayer in spiritual awakening. It's about a 30-minute video. It's just absolutely phenomenal. He, it's terrible quality. He looks like the Kool-Aid man. He looks like a floating head from like the 60s and 70s. But it is one of the most powerful videos I've ever seen. Because he talks about the American Revolution and how America was in this moral slump. Drunkenness was epidemic. Uh, 300,000 out of 5 million people were drunks. 15,000 people died each year. Women were afraid for the very first time to go out in public at night. Methodists were losing more members than they were gaining. Baptists, Presbyterians, Episcopalians, Lutherans. They, they, the church, they were saying, was too far gone to ever be redeemed. At Harvard, there was not one believer in the entire student body. At Princeton, there were only two believers. And J. Edward Orr says it was a movement of prayer that began to change things. It was the explicit agreement of the church in prayer. It was visible unity. It was unusual prayer. And it began to emerge that there was this great awakening taking place. I said I didn't have time to talk about this. I'm talking about it anyway. Sorry. It's just such a cool story. September of 1857, a man of prayer, Jeremiah Lamphere, started a businessman's prayer meeting in the upper room of the Dutch Reformed Church in Manhattan. And in response to his advertisement, can you imagine taking out an ad in the paper? Hey, we're going to pray. 
I can't even do it here, right? Hey, we're going to pray Monday night. We'll be there for the carnival, right? Like that's kind of what it felt like. But in his ad, only six people out of a population of a million showed up. But the following week, there were 14 and then 23 when it was decided to meet every single day for prayer. By late winter, they were filling the church. Then the Methodist church, they began to spill over. Then Trinity Episcopal Church on Broadway at Wall Street. In February and March of 1858, every church and public hall in downtown New York was filled. 6,100 people in attendance just to pray. And their prayer began to flow into ministry. D.L. Moody had 16 years of ministry started because the churches were full. He said, we got to go to the streets. Trinity Episcopal in Chicago in 1857, they had 121 members. By 1860, they had 1,400. It's rooted in prayer. The police in Wales, this is my favorite part, in early 1900, they were unemployed because crime had disappeared. One officer said they had a staff of 17, and so what they did was form three quartets for churches so they could go sing and actually have something to do. Drunkenness was cut in half. Taverns went bankrupt. Slow down in the mines for coal. This is the best, right? Slow down in the mines for coal happened because the miners stopped swearing at the donkeys. <laughs> like there's all this moral renewal taking place. Friends, it's rooted in prayer. It wasn't rooted in political yelling. It wasn't rooted. Can I, just, can I just be honest with you? Like for the past about eight to ten years, as I've watched our politics kind of just go, Bleh, and you've all felt it, the desire of Christians to say, get our side back in power. And I'm just going to say, I don't care what side you're lobbying for. I'm in the background just feeling like, no, because when the church is on the margins, that's when the church has always thrived. There's this weird little part of me that that graph I showed you last week about how Christianity is going to be a minority religion in our country is going, finally, maybe God will take the church back to the caverns where it exploded. And some of us will actually live into the cost of discipleship and go, let's go be the church on move. Can you imagine in our, in our town if addiction was cut in half? Can you imagine if families started coming back together? Friends, we do a lot of yelling about this stuff. Do we do any praying about it? Is a desire for prayer deep within you? Here's the third, the final question. What's at the center of your message? What's at the center of your message? And I don't mean, well, maybe I do. Your social media message, your public message, your work message, your family message. Is it the politics? Is it the, the opinions, the agendas? Or is it the gospel? See, Paul says, if we're going to fight this battle, it's got to be about Jesus. It's got to be about one God, one mediator who gave himself as a ransom. I care about racial justice because Jesus broke down walls. I care about human life because Jesus says life matters. That's the center of my message. That's what this is about. Verse 5, there's one God, one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Friends, we are living in a moment when the church is in decline because we've been spiders and not starfish. If we will reclaim it, it's going to take a movement rooted in prayer, a movement rooted in repentance. Every great moment in the scriptures, Daniel 9, that's your homework because I don't have time to go through it today. Daniel 9, go read it. Daniel's prayer is a prayer that starts with repentance and says, God, we apologize. We're sorry for where we've lost the plot. We're sorry for where we've become obsessive and not transformative. 
We're sorry for not living in the way that you've called us to be. And Daniel's praying this in the midst of Babylon. Friends, we're living in a Babylon moment. We're living in a Roman Empire moment. And the church is on the peripheral. And we need to be called back to this. I'll close with this. I read this this week. I thought this was the coolest thing. Do you know that air bubbles have nine times more powerful energy than water droplets? I don't even know how I read that. I just... That's just my world that I live in. Air bubbles. This is why champagne explodes, right? Air bubbles have nine times more energy than water droplets. Do you know why that is? Because they're surrounded by pressure. They're surrounded by something that puts force on them. And the power builds as they rise. People or scientists are actually trying to figure out how can we harvest the energy of air bubbles. This is just stupid. But it's so cool, right? Air bubbles... I think, can change the empire because every time you pray, you're offering an air bubble. You're saying, God, do something here. The pressure's too much. The world is too much. The anxiety is too much. The fear is too much. And so when we utter those prayers, the band can come. When we utter those prayers, we're giving those air bubbles. We're giving the power to say, God, do what you want to do. We're making prayers, intercession, thanksgiving, requests to God saying, would you act on our behalf? Would you do something amazing in this world? And so here's my challenge for the week. Very simple, very practical. Begin to pray. Begin to pray more than you have. If you pray before meals, that's great. If you don't, start. If you pray before bed, that's great. If you don't, start. If you pray, gather your kids up before school and say, I don't know how to pray. Some of you dads, moms, you're here and you're like, I thought that was the pastor thing. I don't know how to pray. All I know is God is great, God is good. Good, that's a prayer. Go with it. Take a phrase of that each week, God, God, uh, each day. God is good. God, thank you for being good to us. Here's how you're good to us, God. Thank you for being good to us. Amen. Take those prayers. Let them develop. Maybe have a word each day that becomes, the Bible tells us pray without ceasing, right? I, I've just been practicing this, and, and it's a monastic tradition, but I've just been practicing like a word a day. So word, the words I use this week, peace. God, just peace. Just all day, peace. God, just give me peace. Just let that word flow back to your lips. Abba, Father, God, just be my Father. God, safety, God, whatever that is. Pray for the lost. Pray for your enemies. What if we had a movement of prayer in our churches? Friends, I don't want to schedule any more programs, but I would love if some of you say, God is doing something in me, and I want prayer to become a natural, regular part of our church. Good, let's empower you. You are blessed, you are trained. Congratulations. We'll do this thing and go. Let's do it. I will help, I'll support, I'll encourage however we can. But let's be a church that begins to be a church of prayer. As we start to pray, as we start to close with this song, I want to invite you to pray. If you came with family, grab them. Let's pray together here. We've got to overcome this insecurity, by the way, of being afraid to pray with others. We've got to get through this. Because this is, the, listen, you are not ill-equipped. Paul looks at Timothy and says, step up, let's go. You are called to pray. And so as we play the first verse, the chorus of the song, don't hesitate. Grab someone and pray. Even if your prayer is just, God, help me. Help me to pray. God, show me, whatever it is. If you don't have the words, just listen. Prayer is listening as much as it is speaking, amen? Sometimes we just need to be quiet. Because, friends, when you start to do this, you're fighting a battle. And, and listen, this is what I'm convinced of. I promise I'm about done. I've just got like three sermons in one here. I'm convinced that the hesitation in our churches for men and women to pray 
is the greatest tactic the enemy has used to keep the church from being the church. So your hesitation, this, when we gather up in a circle and we pray and everybody goes, ooh, I don't want to pray, and they look at the ground. <laughs> that thing that exists in our culture, because no one's insecure about posting on social media, that insecurity keeps us from being the warriors that God has called us to be. So I'm not Mel Gibson, I'm not Denzel Washington, and I'm surely not Mickey. But we got to fight this battle. And the way you're going to fight this battle is by being quiet, by being still, by making prayers for all those that God's called you to pray for. So let's pray together. If you didn't come with family, grab somebody close to you, find somebody, pray with them, pray on your own, whatever it is, let's be in prayer together. Let's pray.